Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producers, Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, steps agencies could take to improve and broaden the acquisition process, plus why the Pentagon wants germs to be part of the factories of the future. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the U.S. Space Systems Command is turning government industry collaboration on its head. Instead of contractors coming to government systems to share information or feedback, the Space Systems Command is testing out the opposite approach. Colonel Jennifer Krolikowski is the Chief Information Officer of the Space Systems Command. She tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about their new project to create a contractor-owned and operated integrated digital backbone. One of our main pain points that we were seeing within Space Systems Command is how can we work and collaborate with industry partners specifically, with other people in general, but primarily focusing on on how we can work with industry. And so part of our our mantra to that is being able to connect and work with anyone, anytime, anywhere we wanted to. So the concept of an enigma then, too, is to go from device through transport into a cloud to be able to to work together, whether that's in digital engineering or DevSecOps, you know, building code, or just collaborating on a document in general. Um, Oftentimes, you know, the contractors can't get into our networks. We can't get into theirs. We sneaker net things, or it takes forever ever to, to transport files and stuff. So we wanted to be able to have an environment that we understood was secure. We knew who was going to be in it. We could actually work and do things and, and be more productive um, in that respect. And one of the challenges that we always see um, also in the current way of doing business is that a lot of those things are bifurcated. Um, there's a different organization that does each element of those, whether it's from like device management to transport and who, who and where the transport, if it's space transport or long haul, um, and then all the cloud management and stuff too. So we wanted to smooth that out so we understood the full spectrum of how the ones and zeros are going around or being managed or secured, and then providing a good user experience for for the folks and stuff too. So kind of a couple of different problems associated with it, um, but that's pretty much the gist of what we're trying to go after with Enigma. This is not just for contract writing. This is for anything that anyone in the Space Command needs to do. It sounds like, is it a separate cloud or is it a unclassified cloud? Like, how do you characterize this or is it a platform? How do you kind of talk about what this is? Because, again, it sounds like it's just the cloud, which it can be many things to many people. No, for sure. And so we, we go into, like, when I have a user who wants to be able to use the digital backbone, that is Enigma, um, going after what their use case, what is it that they're trying to, to go after or what they're trying to do? So whether it is, like, you know, hey, they want to do a solicitation, and so they want it to be able to do, you know, a digital evaluations or, or something like that, we, we can spin up a cloud for them for that. If they are on contract at that point and they're starting to do the design work, now you can do digital engineering in a cloud where you spin that up for them for that. And the beauty of it is, is that we can then control the compute and storage for it instead of having a generic, like, I need cloud. We can tailor it to what their specific use cases are and, and get to what, you know, compute and storage. We can be better, more efficient managing it in the way that they, um, you know, how many bytes do they need? And uh, being able to kind of manage how we spend on cloud um, that much more. So the other part of it, too, again, goes into the security aspects of it. You know, if the government is providing that cloud environment for contractors or whomever we're working with um, to do that, 
we know what the security posture of it is. We know who's in it. We can we can monitor and maintain that. Um, we know it, who might be attacking it, understanding that sort of thing, um, which we don't always have that insights into the way acquisitions are currently done, especially when you have third, fourth, fifth, ninth tier subs that are accessing a prime contractor's cloud. We don't always understand like how well that's being secured and data can be exfilled. So we're, we're trying to, to pull that back a little bit as well. It almost sounds like it's a sort of a cloud broker setup. What kind of cloud do you need? We have that. Oh, you need, you know, is it, and I imagine this is all unclassified as well. So is, is it is a cloud broker the right terminology or, or how would you terminology? Because I think, again, people are going to listen to this and go, oh, so you have a DevSecOps platform cloud and, and fill in the blank. No, so it's, it's much more than just being a cloud or like, you know, providing a cloud instance. Um, it goes into the device and transport as well, like the access to that cloud. We have that challenge of getting to the cloud or and everybody else getting to the same cloud that we want to with either with that transport or whatnot. So, and when I talk about, um, you know, at the device level, the device may be on, on a base, or it may be on, on location, but it, it could also be remote. And so we're looking at how we can have secure tablets or we can have secure devices that also has that same connectivity um, to the cloud as well. So that's why when I say it's an integrated digital backbone, it's, it goes from device through transport to that cloud access. But the cloud just happens to where we do all of the work. But I need to get access to it. I need the devices to be able to perform to be able to do that too. So that's where we're kind of going. As far as classification levels, Enigma is initially going after IL-5 because um, that's where most of my space systems, um, are be us being national security systems, automatically puts us in a need for IL-5. But we also go going after IL-6. Actually, IL-6 is our first use case to go after secret for some of our first adopters for Enigma and with an IL-5 to be um, there closely behind. So we're trying to go after those first two use cases, but also trying to design the architecture to scale up to the SAP level even um, because we have a lot of systems that, that need to work in there. And again, thinking about classification levels as part of the design and architecture so that it, it, it's that integrated picture so I can take data up and down classification um, is also a little bit unique to, to Enigma so that we aren't bifurcating by classification level either. So it's, kind of, again, that full integrated picture is what we're trying to go after. You kind of answered my next question, so I'll maybe ask a little more specific. Where are we at today with Enigma? Is it still in that design phase? Are you, you talked about use cases. So are you getting close to IOC or, or where are we today? So we're already on contract. We actually awarded the contract back on uh, the 23rd of January. We actually did a, a pretty quick solicitation. So we're all about speed in doing this, but deliberate speed too. <laughs> so for the prototype phase, we have about a year for it to go through. And one of the first deliverables, we have like six, nine, and 12 months um, for certain se um, sets of deliverables. So we should start seeing the first rollout of things um, in the June-ish timeframe. The one thing that's great about Enigma too is I'm trying to leverage commercial as much as absolutely possible. So it's contractor-owned, contractor-operated, leverage everything industry does. We don't need to be inventing things. You guys already know how to do this sort of stuff. So that's going to help lend us to a lot of the speed that we're looking for to being able to, to deploy this kind of system. And then we'll start onboarding folks, understanding how their um, user experience is, whether they um, like the way that the service levels are and things like that. And so that when we go into production, we can help influence what that looks like when we go into the longer term and scaling out of, of the project. It sounds to me like this was a OTA type of Deal. You mentioned three, six, nine months prototypes. So you all did it through an OTA, and this is the idea of 
can we even do this? Does it work for us? Mm-hmm. That's this, what this first year seems to be about. Yeah, so it, it was um, initially awarded under the SPEC OT contract. Um, so we did do it under the OTA. And again, a lot of it was to inform us on were we asking for the requirements right? Has life changed so we can adopt the requirements a little bit going into production? And then understanding you know, what the business model needs to look like, what costs need to look like, how does the scaling need to look like? You know, digital engineering is going to be the first use case of cloud. But then you know, what does that look like from a compute and storage? So there's a lot of information that we can glean from the prototype that can help influence the production going forward. Currently, if you you mentioned a lot of this is done either manually or done with separate clouds. Was there any discussion initially about saying, well, could we beg, borrow, and steal from the Air Force and what they already have set up or what the Army has set up or whomever else across DOD? Was there a reason why you all felt like, we should do our own thing? One of the the big reasons was that connectivity to industry. That wasn't a use case the Air Force was going after in the immediate near term. And considering some of the challenges that we have within the space domain, um, we needed to have something in place like right now. And the fact that we are smaller and are able to, you know, we only have 13,000 or so people versus the 700,000 that the Air Force has. We're able to, to try things out and to be able to get a lot of information and data back to see how it can service us and feed that back to the Air Force. So I am working with um, the Air Force CIO in this as well. They're, they're tracking the project, working with the CTIO at the Space Force side to see, you know, they're tracking it too, how we can fold it into maybe a broader uh, Space Force initiative. But right now for the stuff that we need to do acquisition to be able to get space assets on orbit before uh, we have any challenges from some of our um, near peers, we needed to be able to move out much quicker than some of the things that the Air Force does. Now, that to say, I'm leveraging as much as I possibly can from the Air Force as well. And so we are still, part of what Enigma does too is like, yes, it's a backbone for us on the, for some of the work that we have on the space side, but a lot of the services will still pull from the AFNET. And so we still will tunnel back into the mothership, if you will. Colonel Jennifer Kralikowski is the Chief Information Officer of the Space Systems Command, speaking there with Federal News Network's Executive Editor, Jason Miller. You can find this interview on our website at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, why the Pentagon wants germs to be a part of the factories of the future. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. An emerging need for the future of manufacturing is application of biology. As a result, the Defense Department has issued a strategy for biomanufacturing. To find out more about what biomanufacturing is and why it matters to national security, the Federal Drive turned to the Principal Director for Biotechnology in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, Kate Sixth. And let's start with the beginning, biomanufacturing. It doesn't mean like germs making new germs, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But the germs are reproducing. So those bacteria are reproducing in there. Well, what is it? Biomanufacturing, that's kind of a new term where we're putting together some words, which happens a lot in biology. We like to make up new terms. And I think this is a great one here. So biomanufacturing is really just using biological mechanisms. So it doesn't have to be germs. It doesn't have to be microbes. But these biological mechanisms are being used in manufacturing. And it's a rapidly maturing technology. It's actually been around for years. Now, I've seen biomanufacturing used in the application of biomedical products, such as tissue regeneration that can be grown in a lab, you know, eye corneas and that kind of thing. Does it extend beyond that at this point? Absolutely. 
Actually, it was around before that when we were making beer and wine. Biomanufacturing was a fermentation to make that. And also before, the primary way that we made antibiotics was by fermentation. So that was also a type of biomanufacturing. But today, what we're really looking at for biomanufacturing, especially looking at the bioeconomy and the growing needs of the United States, are things like making paints, fuels, and a variety of other chemicals and compounds that can change our whole approach to how we do industrial manufacturing. And what is the purpose of it? Why do we need it? Because paint and fuel have been great, you know, for a couple of hundred years until now. Yeah, and they still are. Uh, But as we've seen uh, coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have real supply chain challenges. And this allows us another source of these materials that doesn't use traditional synthesis mechanisms. And also, while we're standing at biomanufacturing in the United States, that allows us to make those compounds here, as opposed to overseas, where they've been made for many decades now. And just to help us picture this, tell us how biology would be used to make something like a paint. And we know that paint has lots of military applications. Yes, it's actually pretty cool, the mechanisms that we use for this. So in essence, at its basics, either the microbe itself or things made by a microbe, and a microbe would be a bacterium, a fungus, algae, a variety of different hosts. And these are engineered in a way that we put in new enzymes and new pathways into them so that they actually work as a little miniature factory. And then we grow lots of them and give them lots of sugar. And then on the back end, they produce compounds that are like xylenes and ethanols and a variety of different chemicals that then we can piece together and make into compounds we need. And is the bioengineering strategy, and we'll get into the elements of the strategy itself, but is the strategy a way of addressing supply chain potential interruptions? Is that the primary purpose here? It's one of the primary purposes, yes. So what we're really looking to do in this strategy is actually support a broader domestic biomanufacturing ecosystem. And and we want that to be self-sustaining so that once that gets up and running, it can run on its own. And we want to mitigate the risk of losing newfound capabilities that DOD adopts over time and prevent new supply chain vulnerabilities. Supply chain falls into it, so do logistics, so do just novel materials, things we've never seen before. And how would you characterize the maturity of the industry? For example, you know, a paint factory, just like a cheese factory, can turn out tremendous volumes. And you see the cans being filled and assembly lines and hundreds of gallons pouring out every second. Where does bioengineering and biomanufacturing stand in relation to the ability to scale to the kinds of volumes needed at the industrial level? You actually bring up a really good point that we've got paints and cheeses, and that really, it varies over what you're making and how mature the industry is. But we actually can make synthetic cheese also with biology. So that's another means, but also paint. So uh, each of those industries are different in their maturity. But what we find primarily that we're lacking worldwide is a capacity to be able to take those things that we're making in the lab and scale them up to see how do they work for cheese? How good does it taste for paint? How well does it spread? We need to scale that up. And then once we know that we've got a good product at a prototype size, then we need to make a lot of it. And that capacity worldwide just doesn't exist. We're speaking with Dr. Kate Sixt. She is Principal Director for Biotechnology in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. And let's get into the DOD's biomanufacturing strategy. What does it aim to do and what are the principal elements of it? What we're looking to do with the DOD biomanufacturing strategy is really to support a self-sustaining domestic biomanufacturing ecosystem. 
And we have three principles that are guiding us in this strategy. First, we're looking to establish transition partners for early stage innovations. And that means taking those lab discoveries and moving them forward into a prototype so that we can see how they actually function and will actually enable the military. Second, we're also looking to develop biomanufacturing through innovations in practice and application. And what that entails is both developing new things that we make by biomanufacturing, but also the actual science, the research, the technology that goes into biomanufacturing. This is a nascent industry, and so there's a lot of work that has to be done on just how we make things through biology and how we scale them. And lastly, what we need to do is we need to map the domestic biomanufacturing ecosystem. And what that entails is getting metrics and measurements and methodologies in place to be able to understand what this biomanufacturing ecosystem looks like and how it's changing over time. And that's really going to help us as we invest to identify and track our implementation of the strategy and refine it as we go in time. Do you envision then, say, grants for development of these types of technologies from maybe DARPA or other parts of DOD? DOD has been supporting biomanufacturing actually for many years in smaller scale. And at this point, what we have is a much larger investment that we're making of $1.2 billion over the next five years in biomanufacturing. And that's really going to support us as we foray into, into this world of this ecosystem of building things by biology. Is there any tie-in between biomanufacturing and nanotechnology? Because doesn't that use molecular-level structures to develop more molecular-sized things? Absolutely. I think that biomanufacturing has great potential for making things that would overlap with nanotechnology. And when we talk about the types of innovations that we can do and that we'd like to see is we'd like to make new things by biology that you've never seen made any other way that didn't exist before that. It seems like biomanufacturing has a basic lane in the process industries where the output is continuously processed. That is to say, not in discrete manufacturing like parts. Fair to say? It could be in both. It could also be in parts as well because biomanufacturing can make pieces that go into uh, an entire system or an entire whole. Just in the example we used of paints, what we're looking at is different chemicals that go into making up paints. So maybe not the final paint itself. Right. So you could almost envision maybe, well, if it could make the paint itself, there could be a paint factory, so to speak, aboard a ship. And then it would be easy to do that constant painting maintenance that's required. Absolutely. That's one of the principles of our strategy is actually that far forward logistics, moving things farther forward so that we can use them at point of need. We can make them and use them there. That's it. And the strategy is distributed how and when and whose hands is it in now? It's in the hands of the public. So the strategy was released on March 22nd. And so it's publicly available and people can read it and understand where DOD is looking to invest in biomanufacturing and what we're interested in doing. Dr. Kate Sixt is Principal Director for Biotechnology in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to the biomanufacturing strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, the Pentagon takes the pulse of companies it does business with. But first, steps agencies could take to improve and broaden the acquisition process. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.
Welcome back to the Federal Drive here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The only thing larger than the paperwork it sometimes takes to win a federal contract is the amount of complaints you hear from folks both inside and outside the government contracting community. With around $665 billion in goods and services from outside contractors purchased every year, you can, of course, expect some issues with transparency, equity, and fairness to pop up. However, what can be done to address them? A new report from the Brookings Institution looks to solve some of those problems. I had the chance earlier to discuss some of those suggestions with Brookings senior fellow Daryl West. The federal government has grown enormously in size, and so the reliance on external contractors has grown as well. About 10% of the federal budget goes to outside contractors. That's more than $665 billion every year, so it's a huge amount of money. And so the way in which the government awards these monies is very important for the overall economy. The types of firms that get these types of contracts matters a lot. And of course, we know there have been tremendous complaints about federal procurement and acquisitions policy for years. This is not a new topic. Small businesses complain that all the money is going to large corporations. Women and minority-owned businesses claim they're not getting their fair share. People say there's too much paperwork, there's a lack of transparency in terms of how the process operates. So we wanted to look at this whole topic and just talk about what are the problems with federal acquisitions policy and what can we do better. A significant undertaking. You lay out a few possible reforms that could help address some of those complaints in the national procurement policies. Obviously, won't make you go through every single one of them, but can you lay out the list that you came up with, you and your team did? We came up with a number of ideas that we thought would improve the uh, process. I think one of the most novel ones is when we were looking at the uh, data, like uh, there's information available on which states are getting the federal money. And so we just did a quick breakdown on that. And, you know, it's more than 60 percent of the external contracts go to about a dozen different states. And they are primarily states on the East Coast and the West Coast. There are a few Southern states as well, just because of military contracts and, you know, their number of military bases in the South. But by and large, you know, the typical complaint about the federal government ignoring the heartland actually is true when it comes to federal grants. Uh, Like when you look at the vast part of America, you know, three quarters of the states, basically in the interior, in the Midwest, in the Rocky Mountain states and elsewhere, they're not getting that much uh, federal money. So obviously, I think that's something we need to work on. In our report, we highlighted the problem of needing to broaden the geographic diversity of these uh, grants to make sure that the money is more evenly spread out around the country. We know that People in the heartland feel like they're being left behind already. That's a big source of political problems, uh, kind of fuels populist rage at the federal government. And so this is one concrete thing the government can do in the acquisitions area. It's money they control. They can just do a better job of reaching out to companies that are not on the East Coast and not on the West Coast and just try and involve a broader range of companies. Yeah, it's tough, though, because technology companies don't typically base their their operations in the heartland itself. So, you know, maybe the private sector spreading things out a little bit could help as well. Or, you know, is it on them, too? Or No, you're exactly right. It is a problem in the sense, of, especially in the technology area, like most of the big tech companies are either on the East Coast or the West Coast. So it's going to be hard to diversify that. 
But there is this phenomenon called subcontracting. Like even if a large tech company gets a $5 billion contract, they often will have subcontracts to other firms to help execute the project. And so that's one way in which there could be a better geographic balance. When these tech companies are hiring subcontractors, they should think not just about East Coast and West Coast firms, but there's actually quite a bit of a talent in the heartland. In fact, you know, because of COVID and remote work, you don't have to work in Seattle anymore to have tech expertise. So there's a lot of tech firms located in Austin and Columbus, Ohio and Omaha that actually could serve as subcontractors on these grants. And that would be a way to achieve better geographic variety. We're speaking with Daryl West, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And so I imagine training of government procurement officers themselves, it's probably an area that could always use some extra training. What did you all think about that? This is a big problem in the federal government right now. I mean, there's been a big retirement wave over the last few years, and that's going to continue in the coming years. And it's hard for the federal government to recruit. You know, they're not paying as much as the private sector uh, in general. And like, especially in the technology area, it's really hard for any federal agency to have the kind of expertise needed to evaluate these external contractors. Like, you know, if there is a request for bids that goes out, you need technical expertise to evaluate those bids. Like, you know, there are a lot of agencies that want to incorporate AI in their operations. You know, it doesn't mean that a federal employee has to be able to code but they need to know enough about AI that they can evaluate the bids. So one of our recommendations is the federal government needs to put much more effort into recruiting workers who have the proper expertise to actually evaluate the bids that come in. And they just need to keep training those individuals. Like once those people are in the workforce, there's just so many changes taking place in the technology area. People need to regularly upgrade their job skills so that they can keep up with the new technologies that are emerging almost every week, if not every month. You mentioned AI. Can the newish kind of technologies like machine learning and things of that nature sort of help fill in that gap where the workforce itself is unable to obtain the knowledge required to do this job? This is an area where the federal government actually wants to do a better job, but it's been difficult for them to actually do it. There are all these new tools, uh, AI, data analytics, uh, machine learning, kind of the latest is generative uh, AI, the chat GBT phenomena, which has gotten uh, lots of attention uh, lately. Federal agencies need to do what the private sector has been doing for years, which is use these new tools to improve their agency operations, the way in which the agencies function, how they analyze and compile information. Like there's just a wealth of data analytic tools out there and federal agencies need to incorporate those uh, things uh, in the procurement process. So for example, fraud is always a concern with uh, government contracts. You can actually use AI to spot the outliers, you know, either bids or companies that just seem a little unusual that are not kind of operating with standard business practices you know, it doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty of anything, but when you can use AI to spot outliers, you can then subject those bids to human review to see, is there actually a problem here? Is there fraud? Is there corruption? Is there uh, incompetence or inefficiencies of one sort or another? So we do think if the federal government can start to incorporate AI, data analytics, and machine learning, it would improve their ability to evaluate bids, 
It would improve their ability to evaluate the performance of these companies when they actually have the contracts. Like, are they delivering on what they say they're going to do so? Are they being both efficient and effective in how they operate? So I think these new tools would actually make a big difference if the federal government was able to incorporate them in their operations. The federal procurement system itself is one that takes its time in general, and I'm sure that that's true for reforms to the federal procurement system itself. Where do we go from here, I guess, is the question. You know, are these changes that could be implemented just, you know, at the stroke of a pen, or would it take actually some action from maybe Congress or some laws getting written as well that would add to the timeline? Some of these things are recommendations that can be implemented uh, pretty quickly. The interesting thing is we put out a report, which uh, for people who want uh, more details, that's available uh, free online at brookings.edu. We also did an event a couple weeks ago where we had some of the top officials who handle and oversee federal procurement on. They heard our recommendations, and so we had a direct a channel to them. They talked about their interest in actually doing uh, many of the things uh, that we talked about. And in some cases, they actually have reforms underway that actually are going to do this. Like the Biden administration has prioritized getting more money out to small businesses, uh, having more contracts go to women and minority-owned businesses. So they are making progress in the sense of setting goals for themselves and then trying to push towards better implementation. Daryl West is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Technology Innovation. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, the Pentagon takes the pulse of companies it does business with. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. It's been decades since the last time the Defense Department took an in-depth look at how its contract policies affect the financial health of the defense industrial base. That long-awaited report is now out. Meanwhile, a separate outside study is examining what DOD needs to do to speed up its adoption of innovative technologies. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. She talked about those studies with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. All right, Stephanie, and we have a couple interesting reports to talk about this week, both dealing with various aspects of the defense acquisition system and DOD's planning cycles. Let's let's start with this new one last week from the uh, Atlantic Council's Commission on, on Defense Innovation. I guess one of my takeaways there was a, a lot of what they had to say kind of dovetails with the same topics that we're seeing from the folks who are examining PPBE reform, things like consolidating program elements and dealing with reprogramming authorities and streamlining the whole budgeting system. So, I mean, I guess it's encouraging that there's some consensus developing out there on what needs to be done. But what were some of your takeaways from from their interim report? Sure. Thanks, Jared. And, and thanks for, for raising this. You know, the, the Atlantic Council has this commission, and it's the Commission on Defense Innovation Adoption. And what they've identified as their mission is to accelerate DOD's ability to adopt cutting-edge tech. Um and then to deliver high-impact operational solutions to the warfighter. This is an interim report. It's got 10 main recommendations. Some of them are of high interest to industry. And and what's interesting about this commission is that it's a mix of former government officials as well as current industry officials. And so there is a flavor you'll see throughout this interim report of practicality, which flash to bang in terms of requirements to fielding innovation has been a much-admired 
subject over the last, you know, however long, two decades. But this is the first report where I've really seen them talk about how do you then adopt innovation? And so my takeaways really, some of the recommendations that we're particularly interested in would be, you know, strengthening the alignment of capital markets to the outcomes that you want to achieve. And so there's a lot of um, talk about venture capital, et cetera, in the report. There's also two other areas where, you know, in talking to PSC members, they're very interested. One is establishing a bridge fund to successfully move demonstrated technology into the field, which is that valley of death. Oftentimes we talk about this is a bridge fund for that. And then the other one of high interest to us is how to modernize the requirement system. If, if you know, um, from from experience, the JSIDS process of DOD, it is arcane. It is constantly refreshed and added to. There's nothing streamlined about it. And so those are the ones that we're looking at with with a high interest. And very top down. Uh, I think one of the things that the, the council was focused on here or the commission was focused on here was coming up with things that are implementable relatively soon. How would you say they did on that in terms of coming up with recommendations that Congress and DOD can take and run with? In the near term. Yeah, so the timing of this interim report was no accident, right? It's mid-April. It's the time where you send legislative proposals over for House and Senate Armed Services Committees for the appropriators to look at. So in terms of what Congress can do, there is a lot for them to take away from this report. Whether or not they choose to do it is another question. But what I'm looking forward to is this final report from the commission that's coming out in September. And I hope they do reach out to PSC, other associations, our member companies, to really come up with case studies that support and lend lend, um, evidence to what they're trying to do here. Because I think a lot of times it's a short report. It's only 20 pages. It's got 10 recommendations, but you've got to have support for it, evidence, data, et cetera. And I think that's what they're going to spend their time on. And that's what I'm looking forward to. By contrast, the other study we want to talk about today is not 20 pages. It's nearly 900 when you combine uh, all, all the academic paper, all the academic study and FFRDC study that went into the DOD contract finance study. First time since I think 1985, the department has mm-hmm. taken a deep dive on this particular issue. How'd they do? So we have been watching this contract finance study since it was mentioned in 2019. There was a GAO report that recommended that they undertake this study. Because you're right, the last time there was a comprehensive look at contract finance at DOD, it was 1985. And a lot has changed in 30 years. And so, you know, we looked at it. To be honest, I think it's a bit narrowly focused. It's not sort of the the areas where we at PSC would have emphasized that they look at. And, and it's the changing dynamics of the business environment. When you look at industry consolidation and where companies can find investment, that landscape has changed. And I'm not sure that the report gets at that piece of it. I hope we can have follow-on discussions about this contract finance report. We're actually here. PSC is having its annual conference at the historic Greenbrier in in, uh, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. And we have some folks from DOD who will be here. And I hope to, to catch them on the margins and have a little discussion about where we go from here. A lot of focus in the report on, on the need to kind of expose and gather more data on and do better management of the lower tiers of the supply chain within DOD. You know, the the flavor I got from the report is DOD has a very good understanding of its direct suppliers, its prime contractors, and they are financially pretty healthy. And there's just a lot less that is known or understood about those lower tiers. 
Yeah, we've been talking a lot with DOD about supply chain illumination is, is the phrase that they used to use mm. and sort of unpacking what the supply chain looks like. Without privity of contract, there, DOD really doesn't have the ability to go into the sub tiers and, and, and sort of look into what they're contributing within the final outcome or the final capability that's fielded. So I do think, you know, we have some efforts underway. Defense Logistics Agency is doing something right now to really unpack supply chains. It's going to be a while before we have sufficient data, I think, that we can act on. But that isn't to say we shouldn't keep going, because I think supply chain illumination to make sure that progress payments, for example, that are going to primes flow down to the subs, particularly the small businesses who depend on these contracts. Um, And so, yeah, I think you're right that there is a lot to be done in supply chain. Um, And and this is just, you know, hints at it. But I I think we really need to get a, a broader and more deep effort underway. The, the report, to me, came across as a little bit dismissive of industry's concerns about budget instability and, and the financial impact that, that working with the government can have on some companies. The, the, the overall conclusion they seem to come to is, hey, you guys are making money. Everything's fine. Stop complaining. I'm, I'm being a little bit flip with that. But, I mean, do, do, they, do they have a point when they point to the general overall good health of, of those prime contractors? So I come at it from a slightly different perspective, Jared. Mm-hmm. I come at it from, I think this report spends a lot of time talking about manufacturers and the products domain. Yeah. You know, we're professional services contractors, right? So we look at the services perspective and I would encourage DOD to, to look more um, holistically at the defense industrial base. There are companies that are doing quite well, but I think one thing when you look at studying contract finance, it is about the primes, but it's also about the subs and what's flowing what arrangements or teaming arrangements are allowable, et cetera. Um, and this is this is something both my, my boss, David Berto, CEO, president of PSC, and that I have often said, which is, you know, we don't really s- reward small businesses for doing well or for, for going over time because they have these small business set-asides, um, but once they graduate, some of them hate that phrase, but once they graduate outside of their small status, they sort of fall into this abyss um, in many cases. And so I think when... If I were queen for a day um, and wanted to redo the contract finance study, I would take a, a stronger look at the d- defense industrial base across the board, both manufacturers and service providers. But I would also look at what incentives are we creating to make sure the small businesses want to enter this market, have the forecasting um, you know, demand that makes them viable and want them you know, to be part of this, this industrial base. But then also, how to reward them for growth? How do we encourage them um, beyond beyond just staying small. And I guess back to one of your original points, you know, it, it would be good if we didn't wait another 30 years to do the next study. What, what's the best way to make sure that this continues to be a topic of at least conversation and, and research and study and reform? Yeah, I think there's openness to that. If you go back to the 2019 GAO report, it wasn't just that DAO, you know, assess uh, DOD's policies about defense industry but refresh it periodically. Now, I don't think I'd have to go look at the report again. I don't think it said how often that period of city should be, but I think there's openness at the department to go, all right, so now we've done this big contract finance report. Um, let's go ahead and pull some of the threads. And I think that's where you know associations like PSC can really provide data, anecdotes, um, information that maybe w- weren't addressed in this in this report, all 900 pages of it. That's Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, talking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 
Defense and intelligence agencies are tightening access to sensitive information in the wake of those damaging leaks. The FBI arrested a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman and charged him with releasing the classified material. But experts say it's too early to determine exactly what went wrong, and some are worried about an overreaction to a situation that's garnered international attention. For the latest, we turn to Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Eric. How are you? I'm very well as well. So what is the national security apparatus doing in reaction to these leaks that have really stunned everybody across the board? Yeah, as you can imagine, it's been a pretty swift and and big reaction to these leaks. After the arrest of uh, Jack Teixeira last week, 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, you know, President Joe Biden directed uh, military and intelligence agencies to secure and limit distribution of sensitive information. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has also directed a review of intelligence access, accountability and control procedures across the Defense Department. And a top National Security Council spokesman today confirmed that indeed they're looking at security clearance processes, whether or not the way in which people are cleared for access is appropriate. Uh, Another thing they might look at is the distribution of certain types of classified material, whether it's too wide. Of a, of a distribution. This is according to John Kirby, the National Security Council's coordinator for strategic communications. So clearly this these leaks, uh, the, the, the allegations against Jack Teixeira, the 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, about the war in Ukraine and other sensitive U.S. intelligence has really set off a, a big review across defense and intelligence agencies. So as far as this investigation goes, what happens next? What are officials going to be looking at in terms of what happened and, and how this incident could have been prevented? Right. Well, Teixeira was formally charged in court on Friday. Uh, he's been charged with two counts under the Espionage Act, and there will be a follow-up hearing on Wednesday. And of course, investigators will be homing in on, on how exactly he accessed these documents. Uh, the, the FBI's charging documents state he worked as a cyber defense operations journeyman, essentially a network technician for the Air National Guard at an intelligence base up in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And they'll be looking at, you know, whether he inappropriately accessed these documents. And then, of course, how he was able to get photos of these documents online. Uh, So I spoke with Bishop Garrison. He's a former senior DOD advisor who now serves as vice president of policy for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. He kind of summarized what kind of questions investigators will have. Where was the skiff? What skiff did he get into? How did he have regular access to that skiff? What were the procedures of that skiff whenever individuals were inside of it? So we have questions about the specifics around how he physically did it and what he did that can then help us gain the answers of what we need to do moving forward to help prevent against this type of activity. And again, that's Bishop Garrison, a former senior DOD advisor. Got it. And so you're reporting, though, that there are concerns there could be an overreaction to this incident and they might just lock down anybody who wants to access classified material. What are you hearing about that? Right. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of this material is more widely uh, accessible across the defense and intelligence community. In the wake of of 9-11, there was a big push to break down, quote unquote, stovepipes, as they were called, across the intelligence community and more widely share intelligence and analysis so folks could put the pieces together. And then, of course, more recently, there's been a big push to share intelligence information about the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, with, across 
the defense and intelligence community in the United States, but then, of course, with international partners as well. So there's been this push to more widely share intelligence. And now you could see the pendulum start to swing back uh, the other way. I, I spoke with Robert Cardillo. He's the former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and he shared with me his concerns about a potential overreaction. I suspect that we're going to, you know, you know, make some changes with respect to access at the kind of places where the accused worked. But what I hope doesn't happen is I hope we don't go back to the prior era when, you know, every agency and even within agencies, you know, people treat information access as a source of power, influence control, and then that then gets us back to the disconnected, segregated, and then I, I would argue ineffective intelligence community. Robert Cardillo, former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency there. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so, Justin, some people are looking at the age of the alleged leaker and whether a junior member of the armed forces should have this kind of access. Uh, What is the thinking there? Yeah, of course, you know, folks are looking at why a 21-year-old was able to have access to such top secret information. Uh, But, of course, there's a couple different points there. First, there's a lot of folks in the military who are as young as 18 who have uh, security clearances of some sort uh, in the first place just to do their jobs. And, and his job was essentially a, a computer technician, a system admin type role that needed access to these highly classified systems. So that kind of gives you the potential answer as to why he had this this really high access I spoke with Lindy Kaiser. She's the director of content for the Clearance Jobs website that really tracks these security clearance issues closely. And she pushed back on, you know, some of the criticism that started to push that started to come out about how young this guy, uh, this alleged leaker was. There are a number of 18 to 21 year olds who do have a top secret security clearance who are performing intelligence functions, who are working as analysts, who do see sensitive information and would never compromise that information. So it's not an age issue or a vetting issue per se, but clearly something in the process happened here that broke down, and that's what I'm sure many, many people are spending hours analyzing at this very moment. Again, that's Lindy Kaiser, Director of Content for Clearance Jobs. She also pointed out that you know the federal workforce is only getting older, especially the def- in the defense and intelligence uh, agencies, and you know there will there will might be a push to perhaps vet younger people, but that could actually go against the grain of trying to recruit more young people into the national security workforce. So there's some tension there. Yeah, and you certainly don't want any more blocks in front of uh, recruiting younger workers into the federal workforce. So what else could DOD look at when it comes to security practices and protocols? Yeah, we mentioned, you know, the security clearance issues and the distribution of classified information. Uh, of course, th- they'll be taking a close look at the SCIF up at the uh, Air Force Base that we mentioned earlier and how the security procedures worked there. He was uh, apparently, uh, the, the alleged leaker, Teixeira, was apparently able to print materials. And the New York Times actually kind of matched up the photos of the materials online with his uh, his countertop from his childhood home. So it appears that he was able to bring highly classified printed materials home. So they'll be taking a close look at how exactly that happened. And then, you know, insider threat programs are supposed to kind of, uh, you know, lead to folks having some training around whether to look for certain signs about 
um, whether someone might be might be about to do damage to an organization like leaking highly classified materials. And so we'll have to see how the Department of Justice investigation and and case moves forward and what kind of facts um, come out here about what what exactly broke down in the process, if anything. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. I'm sure you'll have more on this later on because we've only just begun on this topic and this investigation. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more to come here. Thanks, Eric. All righty. Thanks, Justin. You can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, why the Pentagon wants germs to be a part of the factories of the future. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.